to welcome you to another edition of Destinations with Donnie. We're here at Stadium Park in beautiful Medellin, Colombia, and I'm excited to introduce you to Sol Trujillo, who is one of the youngest executives ever at AT&T, as well as the first Latino CEO. He's been a CEO for many corporations around the world, and we're excited for you to hear his story and how you can live your success as well. Welcome. Destinations with Don. Mr. Trujillo, I am so excited to have you here today. We basically um, are thrilled to present you on two of Culture's different podcasts and shows, and looking forward to talking more about your background and what you do for the Latino community, as well as your career. So tell me a little bit about, I know you had a meteoric rise um, in the business world and you came from Wyoming. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what it was like to be uh, a Latino in Wyoming and then where you went from there? Well, great, great. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for having me. And secondly, I'd like you to please call me Saul instead of Mr. Trujillo. Um, my, my life has been known around the world, wherever I've operated, uh, where people just call me Saul, and it's a lot easier for them. I, tell the, I told a joke in Australia that when I went there, everybody wanted to find different ways or attempted to find different ways to pronounce my last name, which is Trujillo. But uh, I heard many versions, and so when I had my first big press conference, I basically said, I know everybody's struggling with my name, I'd like everybody to take note right now of when you address me, how to address me the way that I'd like you to. So th then I stopped and I paused and I said, please call me Saul. Um, and it made it, it, it made a big impact there in Australia because, you know, sometimes people that are Latinos with a name like Trujillo, but it can be Polish, it can be, you know, uh, any 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 other ethnicity sometimes people struggle with that and and I'm very proud of my name and I've always been called Trujillo not Trujillo not anything else uh, but but I like to make sure that people also can have some fun in learning and learning and accepting whatever wherever we come from so first of all let me just say thank you uh, again and in terms of Wyoming um, my parents, they migrated. My roots, my family's roots are in the state of New Mexico, around the area that most people know, which is Santa Fe. And most people don't know that there was settlements, there was colonization occurring in that area in the 1520s um, period of time, about 100 years before the Mayflower landed. And I always like to remind people that some of us have roots that go back 500 years. And, and it's a root that we think is very important as we define our country. Some people think it's, well, we're a British country, we're an Anglo-American country, and therefore it's our country and that sort of thing. And I say, no, 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 no. 
it's our country because some of us were here a hundred years before you were and the Native Americans were here before all of us. And so, so we just need to accept and embrace this notion of people are people, talent is talent, and geography is almost irrelevant. But I was kind of a unicorn in the state of Wyoming uh, growing up where there weren't many Trujillos or Lopez's or Garcia's or anything like that. But it was a great place to grow up for me at that point in time. Fantastic. I apologize for the sound. I'm in Colombia at the moment. And uh, so actually, and Diana is in Merida, Mexico. So we're all over the world right now taping this. And um, as you uh, noted before, navigating all the technical difficulties with that. So I love hearing your background in Wyoming. And as someone growing up as Saul in Wyoming and seeing that there were not too many people around like you, what gave you the business aspirations to do all the things that you've done since then? I mean, you've worked with presidents, you've worked as the head of major corporations, you've worked on almost every continent of the world. How, how did little Saul imagine all of this to be? Well, to be quite honest, little Saul didn't know much about anything growing up. My, my father didn't go to school. My mother went to about sixth grade. And they, had, they got married at a very young age of 16 and 14. So, you know, very, they were babies, basically. And they migrated after World War II to a place called Cheyenne, Wyoming, where there was a lot of work, labor kind of work. And, um, and so they moved there, started their family. And I, the only thing I can say in answer to your question is when I was young, they always told me, you're going to go to college. Now, they had no idea what college was, you know, how you get there, what it is, etc. And I didn't either. But I always heard that in the back of my mind. So I would say they had an aspiration for me as their son. Secondly, I was a competitor. I mean, I love sports. I always competed. I played almost all the sports as I was younger. And then I had to start working to pay my way, you know, when I was eight years old to buy clothes and things like that, you know, when, when you're growing up. And so I didn't get to play the sports the way I would have liked to because I had to compete in a different way. And that was to compete for the economic capability to do the things and buy the things that I needed. And ultimately, I learned a lot about running businesses because you named the job, I probably done it, uh, meaning the, what people would call the low-skilled jobs. I probably done them all. But even washing dishes, I, I was thinking about how fast I could do, how many I could do. I was always thinking about doing more every day, every time. And that was kind of the competitor in me. And then once I started getting into school, taking tests, you know, I'd always like to get the highest score uh, because, you know, there were people that, you know, I was competing with. And it wasn't because it was formal. It was just that was an embedded nature. And then my parents, they just were very supportive, very loving. And I give them all the credit uh, because there was no competition within our family. But it was about the notion that said you can be you know, what you want to be and what we want you to be. And 
at the same time, then the last part is, I saw how they struggled. You can imagine getting married at that very young age, starting to have children and trying to create a better life for your children. And I saw how they, you know, they both worked, they both worked long hours, were very tired and were paying bills, you know, paying off hospital bills for 30 years uh, for the birth of their children. And that all recorded in me in terms of, uh, you know, how I saw how they struggled but never complained. They just went out and got done what they needed to do. And it was an inspiration for me, my parents in particular. And then secondly, it made me even want to, to do more. And that led into the, you know, you know, going to college. Well, okay, I was going to go to college. But to be quite frank, at our dinner table, we did not sit and talk about, the, you know, the budget deficit or a Persian Gulf War or, I mean, that was way beyond our, our scheme of, you know, what our life was at that point in time when we were eating our frijolitos y papitas y tortillas y chile, you know, that... And maybe on a Sunday we might be able to have some, some form of carne or meat, uh, which might be chicken or a very tough roast or whatever it might be. So it was, it was really intriguing and inspiring watching my parents. And that inspired me to want to do what I wanted to do, um, which was more than they could achieve. But they empowered me to do what I wanted to do. I love that. I love that. So they put that seed in and you saw how they were working and you got to the University of Wyoming. Then what is your trajectory from there? What led you and and from your, that first job out of college, how did you have that rise to CEO of, I believe your first was AT&T, correct? Yeah. And you were the youngest Latino, well, the first Latino and the youngest CEO. Did I get that correct as well? Well, well, I was the youngest officer ever in the history of AT&T, which then was the biggest company in the world. Um, and I, I achieved that position at the age of 32. Uh, and my peers at the officer level, probably their average age was about 55. So you can imagine... There's a, a young Latino that had a lot more hair than I have today. I almost had a, a fro-like look in terms of my hair and how I dressed was not the conventional business dress. And at the same time, I was 32 sitting at the table with all these people that basically had buzz cuts and you know they wore gray suits or blue suits every day and white shirts and, and wore hats to work. And I was not like everybody else. But the reason, the, in terms of the career side and going to college, my only choice at that point in time, and my only knowledge at my universe was the University of Wyoming in the state where I lived. Later on, people have asked me, well, how come you didn't go to Stanford and Harvard and all that? I didn't even know about them. Mm -hmm. I was never recruited there because nobody would recruit somebody named Trujillo out of Wyoming, right? It, it just, it was not in my realm of, of thinking. But the one reason where I went to college was I, I decided to major in business. And I didn't know what business was about. But I knew one thing growing up. I had to work starting at the age of eight. Um, but the kids that had cars and had nice clothes and 
and lived in nice houses and all that kind of stuff, their parents were people that were generally in business. So I was correlating the two, and I said, gee, if I were going to make a difference in terms of my life, you know, going forward, I would go into business. So I majored in business, went to the University of Wyoming, and, um, and you know, took the courses and took cl you know, classes like calculus, where you're doing differential equations, and I'd be sitting there saying, how would anybody ever use this stuff, right? I mean, a differential equation, is that real or is that just something that we're doing here in class? And I found out in my first job, literally a year after I graduated, I was doing differential equations, creating new pricing models for a company that was an old, 100-year-old company that needed refreshment, they needed change, they needed all that. And I found myself doing this and all of a sudden saying to myself, wow, I never thought it would be useful because I didn't have any background. I didn't have any context. But once I got into business, I started thinking about all the ways to do things differently in a different way. And that was part of the competitor side. And I was one of those people that just said, look, when there's a problem, let's solve it. Let's not talk about it. Let's solve it. And that started my career where I then was asked to go turn around every bad business, every company problem or whatever. And I used to love it. I'd like to do what other people couldn't do. What was it that opened the ports for you that took you outside of Wyoming then and onto other universities and employment beyond the state where you grew up? Well, I, I guess one word that comes to mind is innovation. I was always innovative, even on boring process kinds of things, you know, tools that people use that needed to be kind of taken to a different level. And, um, and so when I, I, I did what I did in Wyoming and I helped, you know, innovate a lot, I was asked to go to our corporate headquarters. Um, and then when I was there, I worked on supporting a lot of things in different parts of our company. And I used to be sometimes critical of people that weren't doing well. And finally, almost every time I'd have a boss, a big boss, they would come to me and say, well, Saul, if you think it's, it's solvable, how would you like us to move you there to go solve that problem, right? If you think you know the answers, we're going to put you there. So it was kind of a pushback to a person that was outspoken. And, you know, my first, at once I went to corporate headquarters and helped innovate there, then I was sent to the state of New Mexico because it was the lowest earning operational state in the old AT&T. And I took it on, I took the problems on that were there and we turned it within two years to be the highest earning state in, all, in, a, in a relative return kind of basis. And it was about innovation again, innovation in process, innovation with regulators, innovation with customers, innovation in rural areas and providing. Then we were the first state in the country to put fiber backbone. This is in the, in the 70s, in the late 70s across the network. Um, to provide better services and afford companies the opportunity to start doing more for their customers. And I remember one day getting a call from the headquarters at AT&T in New York, which is like 40 layers below, I mean, above me. 
And I had the CEO saying, Saul, why are you putting fiber across the state of New Mexico? And I said, because we're going to make this the most competitive state in the country. And he said, but it's a lot of money. And I said, yeah, but there's a lot of money to be made. And this is back when, you know, today fiber and broadband are, everybody understands it and it's part of breathing air in, in most of our lives. Mm -hmm. But back then I was thinking about those things before the Silicon Valley knew how to spell F-I-B-E-R or broadband as we know it today. But we were doing those things because I was always thinking about making things better, making life better for our customers, making our company better, generating more revenues, more services, and all that sort of thing. And then it carried me back to Denver, Colorado, where it was the same thing, go fix that place. And, and then the rest is history as you take on different jobs and different issues and you innovate each time and you make it better. It's always about making it better and making it better so that people that worked in the company were engaged. And my ultimate desire as I was rising, and this is really important I think for most people, is the era that I grew up in that largest company in the world, it was very political. And you know, if you're a person of color, um, it's like you're not in the inner circle, you're not invited to this or that, and you don't spend time with whoever. And I would watch all that, and I'd see sometimes people that were not performing like I was, getting promotions, and I, and I was a fast riser, but that, that early on I was not so fast, and then I caught fire because I took on big stuff and made results. But I became a believer that I wanted to create a, I wanted to be the prototype a person that gets ahead because of performance. Not because of who you know, and not because you go play golf on the weekend with the boss, or because, in my case, I parted my hair a certain way like everybody else, or I wore wingtips, or you know, whatever it was that was the, you know, the, the norm for people you know, in business. And I was always the maverick. And people took me aside during my progress, and they'd say, Saul, you know, you have to conform. You have to be like everybody. And I say, but I'm not, and I can't. And so I want to get to the top by being myself. And, and I had one person that took me aside, one of my higher level people, and he said, Saul, you should never talk about wanting to be the CEO of the company. And I looked at him and I said, why? I mean, what's wrong with wanting to be the CEO someday? And I said, well, you should never say it. It's okay to want it, but it's not okay to say it. And I said, well, but if I don't say it, then how do people know that that's what I want? And if I don't say it, maybe I can get some advice from people on how, how to get there, how to do it, and all that sort of thing. So, so all of this starts coming together in terms of my rise in a corporate world as a very non-traditional person. And I was the very first, you know, Latino, native-born Latino in this, of a Fortune 150-sized company at the age of 42. And everybody that I dealt with was, you know, generally 10 to 20 years older. Generally, you know, they went to schools that are the nameplate schools, um, 
but for me, it isn't about, your pedigree is not defined by where you went to school or where you grew up, but your pedigree is defined by what you do and who you are and how you do it. Fantastic. So I know your work now has involved into basically moving Latinos forward, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Again, I, I've been blessed, so I always start with that. I mean, I know what my beginnings were, and I can tell the, you know, growing up poor and without a lot story as good as anybody. But that's kind of, okay, that's interesting. But the real thing for me has been opening doors, and in some cases breaking down doors so that others can pass through. And I felt that responsibility because, again, as I watched my parents, as I watched their struggles, and I thought about how they every day sacrificed, you know, not for themselves, but for their kids. And, um, and I just feel that right now in our country, the, the, the place our country is today, the only way that we are going to be competitive going forward, the only way that we're going to grow GDP, gross domestic product, is by everybody valuing the U.S. Latino cohort and understanding that we're the youthful cohort, we're the most entrepreneurial cohort, and this is based on data. So the other thing I learned in my career was when you make decisions based upon data versus just opinion, you can be much more effective, but also effective in helping people understand. And so what I've been doing since I came back from Australia and I saw all these stories when I was over there, you know, I'd been in Europe in the kind of what they call the EMEA corridor, right? Europe operated in Africa, Middle East, and, you know, parts of Russia and other places. Then I went over to, you know, the Asia Pac corridor. But I was watching TV as any American that grew up in the United States who watched stuff back home. And I saw all this stuff about building a wall and deporting people. And there was a guy named Herman Cain that came on and said, we need to build an, elect an electric fence so that if people try to call the, climb the fence to enter the country, they will be killed. I was shocked sitting there in Sydney watching this on the news and saying, that is not my country. That is not the country I grew up in. That's not the country where I remember Ronald Reagan pointing at a Russian president and saying, take down the wall. And I'm saying, what, what's happened? I'd been gone for almost eight years out of our country. And I came back and I said, look, we gotta, we gotta change this. The narrative is wrong. And the narrative is wrong because the fact base doesn't exist. It's an opinion base. And so people thought that if you were you know, a Latino from Mexico or a Latina from the Dominican Republic who might be an Afro-Latina or, or whatever it might be, these people come here and they're parasites. They're, they, they're takers and they're not givers. And they're taking jobs and they're doing all these things we've all heard. And I said, that's wrong. It is wrong but I'm not a person that sits back and complains and whines and say, that's wrong. I called up a friend, Henry Cisneros, who's a Democrat. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Republican, but I never became a Trump pendejo uh, in terms of uh, that kind of Republican. 
but I'm a believer in our country, and so we have to come together. We have to have, you know, this notion of valuing all people. And in particular, you know, we've struggled in this country with, quote, diversity. Um, you know, we're struggling with it today, probably more than we have even maybe in the 60s, because now it's a broader issue. And so I d decided I was going to come back and focus on the Latino cohort, because there's within the African-American community, there's a lot of leaders and there's a lot of organizations that have been effective at times and ineffective at times. But 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 there's a thrust within the Latino community. There really hasn't been any any real forceful pressure on helping everybody understand the Latino cohort its economic significance, its cultural significance, and all of that. So I've been a brand builder and a believer in brands, and so I've sat down with Henry and some other leaders from across the country, and I said, look, we've got to rebuild our brand, and we've got to t take control of our brand, because what was happening is the entertainment media was, was taking control of defining Latinos. And when I grew up, there was, you know, a show called the Desi Arnaz Show with a elegant, muy elegante Latino, you know, who happened to be married to a redhead and they had a nice show and, and all of that. Then after that, there was a, a, a show called Fantasy Island, Ricardo Montalban. I remember being young in my career and people on the weekends coming back, they'd say to me, Saul, how do I roll my R's like that when he talks not only on the show, but when he does that commercial on the rich Cordovan leather, right? And people wanted to know Spanish. They thought it was elegant. They thought it was... And then we moved into the 90s. And all of a sudden, in the entertainment media, you always need bad people, right? When I was growing up, it was the Russians and all those people. Then it became the black cohort. And then in the 90s, it moved after the civil rights and the issues like that, people became more sensitive around the bat, the African-American cohort. And they shifted it over to the Latino cohort, where it was, you know, your gangbangers, your drug dealers, your criminals, sneaking over the border. And in the positives, we had Maria, the maid or nanny, and we had Pablo, the jardinero, which was the Pablo, the gardener, right? And, and I was looking at that and saying, that's just so wrong. It's not that we shouldn't have people that are doing some of those jobs, but we have a lot of other people that are doing other jobs and their value. So long story short, we started gathering data. And today you see the, the, the fulmination of some of that with the GDP report, the Latino GDP report. And it shocks everybody every time we release the report because today the U.S. Latino cohort is the equivalent it's the seventh largest economy in the world. $2.7 trillion of gross domestic product. It's as big as France, soon to pass it, soon to pass the UK when we issue probably the next report. And this is all actual data, not survey, not anything else, actual data. And it may be rivaling India within the next year or two in terms of economic size. So now think about this. Right here inside our country, we have a cohort that is really the, as we would say in Spanish, the meadow meadow of growth, right? The, the one and only, the centerpiece of growth 
inside our economy. And this cohort is a mixture of, you know, a lot of people and that are men and women. The census data just showed that 48 out of the 50 states in the last decade, the majority of their growth came from Latinos and Latinas. 48 out of the 50 states. So when you look at a state like Tennessee, guess how it's growing its economy? You can't grow in an economy without workers and workers of all types. And when you look at the Californians and Texases, which everybody tends to look at, yes, that's logical. But my view has been, I wanna open more doors. And the only way you can do it in a broad basis is to provide broad set of context with data about how attractive, you know, when a Latino or Latina walks in the room, everybody should be saying, whoa, that's our growth, that's our future, that's our innovation, that's our labor force, that's our, they are doctors, they are nurses, and yes, they're the people that sometimes are in the fields, you know, extracting vegetables and whatever else. But we're all kinds of people. And an, and an economy is an ecosystem. It's not one job. It's not one sector. And Latinos and Latinas are everywhere in this country geographically now and also in every sector providing that value. So long answer to your question. I want to open doors and I want to create bridges and I, and I hate to see walls because the one thing I learned as a CEO is when you have internecine battles going on, one department with versus another or one person competing with their colleague versus competing against those that you're supposed to be competing against, you know, you start having problems. And right now we're going through a period in our country and I say this very sadly. We're going through a period where we're more like the divided states of America than the United States of America. And part of my objective is bringing the United States of America back in my little way that I can affect it. And part of it's gonna be because we're now valuing everybody. And I mean, whether you're you know, Latino, Latina, whether you're African-American, whether Asian-American, Middle Eastern, whatever, because nobody has a singular right to say we are America. It's a collective we and us, as opposed to me versus you. The collective we, that is such a great segue. I hope, you know, you're speaking to my heart because this, these are, or this is the premise on which Cultures was founded, really to create those bridges and to, to build awareness about culture and that what you see is not what necessarily you're getting. You know, just because you're looking at someone and you see a visual diversity, which is very important. We need people who look like us so we can relate. But also there's a hidden diversity in the number of people as you even talked about careers. Someone walks into the room, you don't know if they're a doctor or a lawyer or a gardener, right? Um, we need to treat everyone with respect and be the United States of America. Now, along with that, tell me, and you mentioned it before, which sunk to my heart as well, Tell me how the Afro-Latin population fits into your work. Well, uh, and it does it, does it? No, it, it does, absolutely. Um, it fits in because a Latino or Latina is a Latino or Latina. And the Afro-Latinas are now like um, 
there's so much intermarriage and intermixing that's occurred within cultures um, that there's a, a TV show that I've been working on. I'm, I've invested in a Latino uh, producer. Um, his name is Jeff uh, Valdez. There's a show that's going to be coming out called The Garcias. And in that show, um, there's a, you know, if you live in California, you see a lot of intermarriage between some of the Korean, uh, Asian kind of population because there's concentration in San Francisco and in LA. If you go down into Florida, you see a lot of, you know, Dominicans, Dominicanas that look, you know, they, they're Afro-Latinos and a lot of Cubanos, Cubanas, a lot of Puerto Ricanos, because everybody, you know, the, the African population, they were also here very early whenever the, mostly the British came over because they brought slaves, right? What they were calling the slave. And, and so, you know, there's a natural act between men and women and people that sometimes there's, you know, kind of the mixing that occurs. And so in my case, the way I think about it and, and really struck me hard one day is that I, you know, because I was the first kind of Latino reaching high, you know, the highest level of, of a big company, I was one day speaking uh, on a business meeting uh, with a company that I won't name the company, um, a very important company, big company, and one of their strategic planners in the meeting, um, he was from the Dominican Republic. And he was very Afro-Latino. Pero hablaba, you know, español, más mejor que yo. But he introduced himself to me. And, you know, he was probably at the time maybe 35 years old, 38. And he said, Saul, I've been wanting to meet you for so long. And I said, really? And he, I said, why? He said, I've had a poster of you up on my wall in my office because as a Latino, I wanted to hopefully be someday like you. And, you know, I'm not a guy that thinks about myself as the role model and all that sort of thing. But here was an Afro-Latino young man that was looking at me as kind of a role model for him. And it struck me because I have not, in my career, worked a lot around Afro-Latinos until the last probably seven or eight years. And so for me, it's like all your children, right? The children may be different. They may, some may, you know, in a lot of Latino families, you have darker complected versus really light complected, you know, it, it, but you love them all the same. And for me, I want, I want all I mean, I want all people to be successful in the various ways that they can be. But we also include that, in, in, you know, the notion of Afro-Latinos and Afro-Latinas in terms of how we think about this. Because anybody that can grow up bicultural has a competitive advantage. When I went to China, when I went to all these places, I found out that being bicultural, the Chinese really related to me a lot better than some of the Australian people that they had been used to, right? Why? Because you have a wider lingual lens. And so if you grow up as, as an Afro-Latino, 
you live part of your life in terms of the African kind of community experience, and then you also grow up in the Latino side. And so, again, there's a wider angle lens that you grow up with, and you can be more endeared and more endearing when you have that, right? So I never thought differently about the Chinese or in Slovakia or in Botswana or wherever I was. I was always thinking about them as people striving to be better, striving to make a better life, striving to be great customers if I could solve problems for them, right? And it didn't matter to me whether in Botswana they were a true African, right? Or whether in Slovakia they were kind of part of the old Soviet Union and whatever else, but I could see the aspirations in people's eyes. And what I want to do is just kind of, I'm focusing here because I know there's a lot of effort within the African-American community that's very focused. And we need it in the Latino community and Latinos, which are both, you know, of, of, of all the stripes that we are, because we are a lot of different stripes. But I don't look at a Cubano or Cubana different than I do a Puerto Ricano or a Mexicano or a, you know, somebody, a Colombiano. It, it, to me, when I look at us now, our composite is so great, so beautiful, so innovative, so everything. And then I always point everybody over to the music industry. The music industry really shows something that everybody needs to understand. Today, 28 out of the Billboard Top 40 songs, almost every week, are Latino, Latina artists. And some of them are, are you know, they're of all spectrums. And that's kind of the beautiful thing is that when you see a Jennifer Lopez with the Maluma, right? Or a J Balvin, or, or going back in, to a Ricky Martin, or whoever, or the Mariachis de Mexico, right? And you see a Carol G, uh, right? And she's singing with Mariachis, right? But she is a different genre of music, but you know, fusing it. That's the beauty of, of where we're at, I think, today. And those who know how to capture it and take advantage of it are the people that are going to be most successful in, you know, what I call the 21st century America versus 20th century America. We appreciate your time so much. And we know that you're very busy. So um, look for the feature in both cultures and destinations with Donnie. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Today. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Cultures is thrilled to bring you the best of cross-cultural identity through highlights of the African diaspora in Latin America. Want more? Support us with a subscription that includes three annual deliveries of media, products, and experiences to embolden your cross-cultural identity and ensure you live in full color. Subscribe today at culturesmag.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you.